you ever have sex with an animal, Jack? Remember those chickens around the Indian reservation? There's some good-looking chickens there, Jack. You know, between us. Yeah, a couple there might have taken a shot at. <laughs> a bounty hunter and a mob accountant travel across the country, avoiding government agents and mafia hitmen. This week, we chat about confusing ways to give someone a phone number, credit card scams in the 80s, and a surprising fact about horse ownership. We also discuss Marvel's Phase 4 plans before finding out if Midnight Run stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone. This is James Brief with the Test of Time. Alan, how are you? Hi, I am well. Today we're going to talk about Midnight Run, but before we get into that, let's go over all of the Marvel news that came out recently where they gave us some information that we already knew. They gave us some new dates. They gave us some new titles. I assume you didn't watch the video because you don't watch trailers. The video they released, it wasn't really a trailer, but I mean, there was some movie footage in there. So I'm guessing you didn't watch it. No, no, I haven't seen anything. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to avoid all media from this stuff. I did hear the announcements of the titles and that's really about it. Yeah. So the big headline is that there are officially four MCU movies coming out this year. I don't think that's new information, but you have Black Widow coming out on July 9th in theaters and Disney Plus premium access. September 3rd is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. November 5th is Eternals. And December 17th is Spider-Man No Way Home. So that's four Marvel movies in one year, which is more than usual. You know, before we were getting two or three, but Of course, we only got two in 2019 and then nothing in 2020. So they're kind of making up for lost time. And then there's another four in 2022, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, Thor, colon, Love and Thunder, Black Panther, colon, Wakanda Forever, and The Marvels, which is the Captain Marvel sequel. It's amazing that Marvel had zero releases in 2020. And, you know, hopefully they have, they've had a, a good amount of time to just think about and plan out phase four. And I guess if they want to make it four, five, and six, because they did such a good job of very slowly planning out a grand story and a pretty good grand story sprinkled over 20-something movies. And I hope they're giving it the right amount of time and not necessarily doing what DC did. Don't try to rush it. And same thing with Marvel. Don't try to rush back to Endgame. You cannot get to Endgame anytime before, almost maybe in this decade. Yeah, I mean, I think that they know what they're doing and there's a lot of faith that I personally have in the MCU. I think that they're doing a lot right and it seems very deliberate and calculated in addition to all the movies I 
already named. They also gave two movies with dates in 2023, Ant-Man and the Wasp, colon, Quantumania, and Guardians of the Galaxy, colon, Volume 3. And that's not to mention the fact that they also announced another Captain America movie. They also are doing Blade with uh, Mahershala Ali. They kind of teased that a Fantastic Four reboot is coming. They're probably will be X-Men at some point. So all of these things are happening, are coming, and it's in their best interest financially to not fuck it up. And I think that their track record shows that they are doing a very good job. And, you know, with this, like, giant information dump with all of these movies and all of these titles through 2023, the quote-unquote backlash is people saying, yeah, but what about Blade? When are they going to announce X-Men? When are they going to announce this? Like, the only criticism that people have is, we want more? And that's a really good place for Marvel to be in. Oh, yeah. And one thing Marvel has done right is they've looked at the source material and a lot of the best stories that have been in Marvel films are based on comic books. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, things that that can really match the uh, Infinity Wars of of those gems. And and there was something called the Secret Wars. I think that this phase is really going to deal with, uh, you know, this multiverse and and they're going to do things that are going to be very different. It's not just going to be yet another bad guy that they have to all fight together to beat. I think it's going to be something real fun. There will be a slip-up, though. I don't think that Phase 2 is going to be another 100% uh, success, though. That's fair, but um, I was listening to this great interview with the uh, the showrunner from The Falcon and the Winter Soldier on a podcast called The Watch, which a friend of the show, Adam Pincus, turned me on to. And he was telling this story about Kevin Feige. He was in the room when someone asked Kevin Feige, like, how do you do it? What's the secret of your success in all of these movies in this huge franchise? And Feige apparently sat there and thought about it. And he thought about it. And then he said, oh, and Marcus Spellman, the, the showrunner of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, he was kind of blown away by that. And he sort of took it to mean like, yeah, they've got a plan. Yeah, they know what they're doing. But to just kind of like explain it in a soundbite of like, what's the secret? Oh, they're good at what they do. It's not a clear formula. It's not easy to replicate as DC and like every other studio that's tried to replicate it has found. It's not easy. Maybe it's luck, maybe it's skill, maybe it's some combination, but they are clearly doing a lot right. Yeah, and uh, we'll see what happens in phase four. Indeed we will. But today we are going to talk about a movie called Midnight Run. This was a movie that you had suggested we do. I'd heard of it, but I'd never seen it, and the only teaser you gave me was that I like the two main stars and it's Robert De Niro and Charles Grodin. So yes, I do like the two of them. What's your history with this movie? Like, had you seen it when you were a kid? I saw this movie exactly one time before. I was uh, staying at my aunt and uncle's place. They actually live in Jerusalem. And this is 20 years ago and I was like sleeping over their place. And... 
my little cousins were all asleep and Israeli TV kind of sucked, but they did have a bunch <laughs> of uh, VHS tapes and yeah, they still had, they had a VHS DVD player, I think, maybe, but uh, I saw this movie among there and my aunt just told me, she's like, oh yeah, I like that movie. So I watched it and uh, yeah, I hadn't seen it in 20 years and then I happened to see it on HBO Max and I was like, you know what, Al? Let's visit the Midnight Run. Yeah, 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 yeah. Listen, I think it's cool when I get to discover an 80s movie that I hadn't seen, so I was on board. And the movie is about Jack Walsh, played by Robert De Niro, who's a bounty hunter who's hired to locate a mob accountant named The Duke, played by Charles Grodin. And Jack needs to bring The Duke back to L.A. Jack is told that this will be a quick and easy job, a midnight run, if you will, However, several other parties are interested in finding the Duke. Those include mafia hitmen who are under orders to kill the Duke before he can become a witness against mob boss Jimmy Serrano, and the FBI, who want to protect the Duke so he can testify against Serrano. There's also a rival bounty hunter who's also trying to cash in on the Duke. Walsh and the Duke have to stick together to make it across the country, and even though they're very different, they become friends along the way. Aww. So cute. So I don't remember this movie coming out. Uh, how did it do at the box office? This movie came out July 22nd, 1988. And you know, surprisingly, it had a $35 million budget, according to Wikipedia. That can't be right. Really? The only thing I could suggest is, could Robert De Niro have demanded that much money back then? I, I mean, there are a lot of like car chases and stuff. A helicopter explodes. Yeah, helicopter explosion, which I I assume probably would have been like a, a toy, but maybe it was real, you know. But uh, the film did wind up making uh, thirty eight million dollars domestic and eighty one million dollars worldwide. So maybe it made a couple bucks uh, after all these years, you know, with uh, distribution and DVD and streaming rights. That is a distinct possibility. Um, so when the movie opens, we see Jack, who's trying to get uh, one of his, what would you call it, a, a, a perp? What do you call the person that the bounty hunter gets? A bounty, maybe? I think it's a bounty, yeah. Let's say it's a bounty. Okay, sure. It, that kind of makes me think of paper towels, but all right, fine. He's going to get a bounty, and this guy's shooting at him. He's just about got him. And then this other bounty hunter shows up, this guy Marvin. He's about to take the bounty away from Jack, but Jack is able to get the upper hand. He brings him in, and his boss is this guy, Eddie, played by Joe Pantoliano, or Joey Pants. Hey, nice nickname. Did you just make that up, Al? I most certainly did not. I wish I could take credit for coming up with Joey Pants, uh, but no. Uh, and Eddie's like excited. It seems like he's saying like, oh, you finally got someone. But then he also says that he needs his help to get this other guy, uh, the Duke, because he's the best. So I don't know. Maybe he was just being like sarcastic and just giving him shit like, oh, haha, you you finally caught someone. I didn't really get the point of that joke. I get the feeling that Eddie is the kind of guy that never praises his uh, his employees ever. So it's always, you're a piece of shit. Now remember, the kind of guy Eddie is, he's a middleman. He serves no purpose. If he's always telling uh, you know Jack how great he is, Jack should be just going off on his own. Find the bounty himself. He doesn't need to give any finders V's higher up. He's doing all the hard work. You know, uh, I think Eddie's just kind of a scumbag. That's true. And... Who plays a scumbag better than Joey Pants? I mean, really. 
has he ever played like a loving father figure or like fun <laughs> Uncle Ralph? Um, I don't know. Off the top of my head, I can't think of any nice guys he's ever played. Um, oh, actually, you know what? We did see him in Bad Boys, and he was like the kind of no-nonsense captain, but he wasn't like a bad guy. He was kind of tough but fair, wasn't he? Uh, I, I, that's the closest you're going to get to a loving character from Joey Pants. But, I mean, he's he's well cast in this role as uh, as Eddie, the lone shark boss. Right, right. And so I didn't fully get, like, the plot machinations of, like, the bounty bond thing with the Duke. Okay, so basically, Jonathan Mardukas, uh, who they call the Duke, Charles Gordon's character, he was, like, the accountant for a mob boss— he was solely stealing money. Like, he stole millions of dollars from this guy. And apparently, he gave millions of dollars to charities. But uh, he was arrested because it's still illegal. He cheated on the taxes and everything. So now he's going to go to jail for a long time. There was a bail for $500,000, which uh, Eddie Joey Pants put up. And then the Duke, he skipped bail. Because he knew if he's in custody, he's just going to be killed. So he skipped bail. Jumped bail, rather. Which means that now there's a bounty on his head. And the bond is going to expire soon. And something, something, something. If he doesn't get this guy back by Wednesday at midnight, then um, Eddie's $500,000 bond is going to default. And he's going to be out half a million dollars. So because of that, Jack says, if it's that important to you, I want $100,000. But what is the something, something, something? And also, why did Eddie pay for this guy's bail in the first place? That's what bail bondsmen do. Like when they say um, you have a million dollar bail, you have to put up like $100,000. And most people don't have $100,000. But right across the street from a courthouse, uh, there will be bail bondsmen. And they're like, we'll put up the $100,000 and this is a loan. And I don't know the exact terms of it, but it's basically, you know, you're not getting you're not getting the best bank rates, I'm sure. But uh, somehow it's in their best interest to be making these uh, these high stress loans that people need to take out. Okay, I guess I just don't really understand like the mechanics of why he would pay for this other guy's bail, but then he runs the risk of losing that money if the guy is not delivered by Friday at midnight when he knows that he's obviously going to be a high profile target for the mafia. He's jumped bail, so the bail bondsmen are all after him for the bounty. And also, the mob has put a $1 million bounty on this guy's head. Right. So everybody wants this guy. After Eddie and Jack talk about going to get the Duke, then the FBI approaches Jack and is like, we hear you're looking for the Duke, and you better not get him, because if you do, you'll mess up our case against Serrano. Serrano is the, the name of the mafia guy. But it's like, how did the FBI find out that Jack was involved? How did they know where he was? That seems a little convenient. But Jack uses it as an excuse to just kind of, one, be a smartass to these FBI agents and to steal one of the guy's badges. So then while he's flying to New York, he's altering the badge and, you know, putting his picture over the FBI agent's picture. 
And that just kind of made me laugh that he was doing that like on a commercial flight. There's a little kid sitting next to him and he's like, yeah, what do you think? And the little kid's like, yeah, not bad. Like you don't do that in plain sight of everyone on the plane. Also, he had it looked like kitty scissors on the plane. I don't even know that you could have even like kid safe scissors on a plane now, like post 9-11. Yeah, probably not. But uh, IDs with, you know, pictures kind of stapled to them were certainly uh, easier to fake back then. Sure. But, you know, I want to say I do love the FBI agent, the main guy. He's played by an actor named uh, Yafet Kado. And this guy is awesome. He was uh, an alien. um, And I remember him as one of the uh, runners in The Running Man, a uh, probably one of the final Schwarzenegger films that we need to review. I don't believe I've seen that one. But yeah, he's he's great. I mean, he's just so deadpan throughout the entire movie. But when Jack lands in New York, these two mafia guys approach him and they also are like, hey, are you Jack Walsh? We hear you're looking for the Duke. You better not get him. We need him. And again, it's like, how do they know that he's looking for the Duke? How do they know what flight he's on? How do they know exactly where to find him? It seems like all of these guys don't know anything about where the Duke is, but they know a lot about Jack. And then Jack seems to find the Duke really easily. Like, it is not that hard. Uh, He basically tracks down, like, the woman that the Duke called when he was arrested. Her phone number is listed as 212-KL5, which is, uh, like, another way of saying 555, the fake movie number. They've said that on The Simpsons, like, Klondike 5, I never heard that outside of movies or TV shows. Yeah, you know, the 555 thing always takes me out of a film. I don't know what it is. And, you know, there's some films that don't, and I wonder if they just, like, buy a phone number, and they're like, all right, I'm just, like, buying, like, 50 years' worth of this phone number prepaying, you know, 2000 bucks or something. Yeah, I mean, there's got to be some way that they can get away with it. But not even just 555, but, like, the Klondike 5 thing. Like, did people used to make up little um, mnemonics for remembering phone numbers with, like, letters? That just seems, like, more confusing. Oh, I think it's a way of not saying 555. That's what I always thought. To me, it's a more distracting thing because who ever uses the word Klondike? Yeah, you go up to someone and, like, hey, give me your number. And you're like, all right, 212-203-FR-74. You know, you don't randomly (laughs) put letters in there, you know? Exactly. And then you don't randomly make words out of those letters because then how do you know what the letters are that you're supposed to use? Because you're not spelling out the whole word Klondike. This is definitely the most we've said the word Klondike in any of our podcast episodes. Um, But the way that Jack sort of tracks down the Duke is he uses pay phones and he waits for the woman to dial the number for the Duke. And then he's able to like figure out what the phone number was based on the the tones of the touchpad, you know, beep, bop, boop is 213 or whatever. Like all of that stuff doesn't stand the test of time, but it's kind of cute. It's like a fun 80s way to track someone down. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. And uh, while this is all going on and uh, Jack is calling in to Eddie and giving him updates, oh, yeah, I got Duke and, yeah, I'm at this motel. And one of uh, Eddie's assistants, he's actually going off on walks and then he goes to a payphone, and another test of time payphone thing, and he calls the mob. And he's like, I just heard he has the Duke and now they're in Illinois. So he's basically the mole at Eddie's. Right. But also the feds are tapping Eddie's phone. So that's why throughout the movie, the FBI is on Jack's trail because Jack keeps calling Eddie and telling him exactly where he is. And that's also how the mob knows because Eddie's assistant keeps saying, I'm going to go get donuts. And then he goes to the payphone across the street and calls the mafia. That's how the FBI agents and the mafia guys always know where Jack and the Duke are. And, you know, I appreciate that they gave us that because we recently reviewed a film, uh, The Saint, and one of our criticisms were these bad guys, they always know where they are. And, you know, say you had a tracker on them or something, but there's no reason they were always one step behind them. And I like that this film actually had that scene in there. Now understood why they were only one step ahead of their pursuers. Right, right. And this should be a simple, easy job. Jack is just going to take the Duke on a plane, fly from New York to L.A., easy peasy. But the Duke says he's afraid of flying. They're sitting in first class, which has like a giant dining room table and a spiral staircase, which is like, wait, what the fuck? That's like what first class looked like in the 80s. But the Duke has like a panic attack, I guess. He starts freaking out and they get kicked off the plane. So now they can't fly. They need to take other forms of transportation. They start by taking a train and Jack calls Eddie to tell him, you know, what happened. And then Eddie is pissed. So he calls Marvin, the rival bounty hunter from the opening of the movie. And Marvin has no trouble whatsoever finding out where Jack is because he calls the credit card company and gets them to say where he last used his credit card and then cancel the credit card without like any security questions whatsoever. You know, I actually have to chalk this one up to possibly accurate because my dad would always tell us the story. He had a gas card and you'd give the, the card to the guy and he'd have to, you know, run the click click machine. And he wound up mixing up the credit card. He was like processing two different people at the same time. So he gave um, someone else uh, my dad's card and my dad got his card. My dad put it back in his wallet, didn't notice it until the next, you know, a week later when he needed to fill gas. But the other person, they had the credit card and they were able to just use it for weeks, even after my dad like notified them. It took a long time to like cut it off and like back then I really think you probably could uh, you know do some scams with little information because to be fair Marvin did say his date of birth and everything like he knew that stuff because you know he's a bounty hunter which is you know they know that information I guess that's fair I'm just thinking like you know now if I need to call the credit card company for anything I have to like tell them my name and address and date of birth and the last four digits of my social and you know my mother's maiden name and answer 87 security questions so the ease with which Marvin's able to do it also Marvin cancels one of Jack's credit cards but then we find out later when he's trying to buy a bus ticket that he doesn't have another credit card which I assume is a test of time thing that maybe back in the 80s you only had one. 
Oh, absolutely. It's funny how this is one of those things that kind of reversed. You know, you ever heard that expression like a hundred years ago, everyone had a horse and the richest person has a car. And today everyone has a car and only the richest people have horses. No. Makes you think. Um, mm. Back in the 80s, they used to show this in movies all the time. People would flip open their wallet and show, look how rich I am. And it's like they have like five credit cards, you know, 10 credit cards, Diners Club, MasterCard, Visa, American Express. You know, back to school would brag about that. Trading places showed how many credit cards you have. Whereas today, if you're like, I have 10 credit cards, it's like, dude, you're opening way too much credit. You probably have a problem. I think most people have like two or three but you don't have 10 anymore like it was a status symbol in the 80s. Interesting. And now the status symbol would be just to have like one black card or something like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the things that are elite. Right. But while Jack and the Duke are traveling, they are annoying each other. Jack is mad at the Duke because he was afraid of flying and he chains him up in the train. But they also go to have dinner and they start talking and there's a little bit of the backstory and the Duke says how he stole the $15 million from Serrano, but he gave it to charity because he wanted to help people. And Jack says that he has this estranged wife and daughter, he, or ex-wife, uh, that he hasn't spoken to in nine years. And the Duke is like, oh, we should go meet up with them. They're in Chicago. That's on our way. And Jack is like, no, we're definitely not going to do that. So, of course, you know that that is going to happen. Um so they do end up in Chicago. They do end up going to the ex-wife and Jack has to ask for money because they're broke because of the credit card. And I was a little surprised at how like serious that scene was where Jack comes face to face with his daughter who he hasn't seen in nine years. And, you know, he's yelling and screaming with his ex-wife and then she shows up and he doesn't know what to say to her. And, Prior to that, the movie's been kind of action comedy sort of genre. And in this scene, it like kind of feels like real. And uh, also, it's Robert De Niro playing this father who's lost his family. So, yeah, you know, Robert De Niro can act. We know that. But I don't know. Like, I, I was just sort of like surprised by like the emotional gut punch of this scene. Would you say that as a father? I don't think that's necessary. I think anyone could have the feels from the scene, whether or not they were a father. Did you have feels from the scene? Oh, I think it's a great scene. And I think it's another example of, you know, a lesser film would not have this scene because parts of this are part of a formula. It's, you know, your typical planes, trains, and automobiles. This guy's got to go from New York to L.A. There's a deadline. And every single mode of transportation isn't working. I mean, we've reviewed this. Everything from the Frisco Kid is this basic formula and all the zany adventures that they go through on the way. Rain Man. Rain Man, exactly. I mean, this is it's a classic formula. It's, it's a lot of fun. And the thing is, there's so much you could do with it. And this film chooses to have a couple scenes like this that, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to have. And I think when you have Robert De Niro, you know, use him. Yes, exactly. And, you know, as they're going, we're finding out more and more of the backstory with Jack and that 
He used to be a Chicago cop, and he was not corrupt, unlike everyone else on the force. And there was this heroin dealer, and he was undercover, and he was about to bust the heroin dealer when the cops framed him, and they conveniently found all of this heroin in his house. And Jack thinks that his ex-wife's new husband is one of these corrupt cops, and Jack is always checking his watch, and it was a watch that his wife gave him, and you sense that Jack is a guy who doesn't want to talk about his feelings and his past, but the Duke is able to pull this information out of him because the Duke is a good guy, you know, like he stole from the mob to give to charity, you know, like that's who he is. Right. And I also think uh, Charles Grodin, you know, he's not in many things I've seen, but when you see him, he, he really is cast well. And, you know, we saw him in Dave in a nice role. He's very genuine. I mean, he seems like the kind of guy that even uh, Jack would open up to. Right. Right. Um, eventually, there is like this big shootout with the mafia guys. They have a helicopter and they're chasing Jack and the Duke. And Jack is able to like shoot the helicopter and blow it up which did feel a little cartoony also because of like the special effect is really bad like it literally looks like a toy helicopter that they just kind of like put some dynamite in or something it's a noticeably bad effect it's kind of a television effect and yeah you know this is not 1968 this is the late 80s and you know you you have the rambo film so you could definitely do it better than this yes yes definitely um in that scene both jack and the duke end up in like these whitewater rapids and the duke goes to save jack and he shouldn't he said to jack i'm gonna have to give you the slip at some point because if you bring me to jail, I will be killed. But when Jack is drowning in these rapids, the Duke goes to save him. He hands him like a branch and says, I will save you. Please just promise that you will let me go. And Jack does promise. He says, OK, I will let you go. But then later he's like, I will let you go as soon as I drop you off at jail, which is, you know, a dick move. He's lying to him. And then as soon as the Duke gets a chance, there's like a gas station on an Indian reservation and the Duke steals this plane and tries to take off, you know, and fly away from Jack, which, as you remember, he should not be able to do because he said that he was afraid of flying at the beginning of the movie. But it turns out that he was lying about that. But, you know, there is a very 80s line here that says, uh, you know, you have an ulcer because you have two forms of expression, silence and rage. That's what uh, the Duke says to uh, to Jack. And back in the 80s, everyone thought that ulcers were caused by, uh, by stress. And then in the 90s, uh, these gastroenterologists proved that uh, it was actually caused by an infection, a bacterial infection. Right. So now, like, they're even more pissed at each other because the Duke was lying to Jack about not being able to fly and Jack lied to Duke about setting him free and they hate each other, but they're broke. So they need to work together to get some money for some food because they're starving and they go into this bar and basically try to scam the owners out of $20 bills. 
Oh, I love this scene. This is great uh, because this is actually the first time you see that Jack is actually trusting uh, the Duke because Duke is like, give me the badge. And he takes the FBI badge and he runs a scam by going in and saying, let me see all your $20 bills. He has uh, Jack uh, erase him with a pencil and he's like, you're doing the litmus test, right? And Jack's like, oh, yeah, 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 the, the litmus test. And then Jack would just be like, these are good, but uh, these 20s here, they're counterfeit. That's the way they, they scam some cash out of this bar. And I love this little exchange at the very end of this scene. Grodin's character is like, all right, thank you very much, sir. And he asks him what the name of the establishment is. And this guy who's the owner, he says it's called Reds. And this character has uh, brown hair. What's the name of your establishment? Red's Corner Bar. Are you red? Yes, sir. Do you dye your hair? No. Why do they call you red? Well, it's short for Red Wood. Uh, my last name's Wood. What's your first name? Bill. Thank you for your cooperation, Bill. It's just a very funny delivery by Charles Grodin. Right. And then the Duke tries to give Jack the slip again as he's running onto this freight train, but Jack is able to get on the freight train anyway. And apparently the litmus test thing that was improvised and apparently a lot of this scene on the freight train was improvised too, where the Duke starts saying, tell me something else about yourself. Like when we were at that Indian reservation, some of those chickens, like you would have had sex with one of those chickens, right? I mean, there were a couple of cute chickens and then Jack actually chuckles a little bit. And apparently that was uh, like something that the director pulled Charles Grodin aside and said, just say whatever you can to make him laugh. And that was what he came up with. But they get more into the backstory of Jack's life as a cop. And apparently the heroin dealer that ran Jack out of Chicago was Serrano, the same mafia guy that wants to kill the Duke. So now we get like a full sense of the story that Jack had so much integrity that he wouldn't go on the take and he wouldn't be corrupt in Chicago. And that's why he wouldn't take money from Serrano's goons in the beginning of the movie when they're like, hey, you're going after the Duke? The other guy's going to pay you $100,000? We'll give you a million dollars. And Jack wouldn't take the money from them because he hates these guys. So he has integrity, but at the same time, he wants the $100,000 so he can start a new life But he's also giving his enemy, Serrano, what he wants by being able to kill the Duke and silence him. So the Duke's kind of calling him out on that and being like, you're helping your enemy here. Is it worth it? Oh, absolutely. He's like, you're just delivering me to the mob with one extra step and you're just going to save them a million dollars. It makes no sense what you're doing here. And, you know, he pleads with him for his life. But uh, Jack's going to do what Jack's going to do, and Jack's going to turn him in. And now we're in the American Southwest. It's always such a fantastic backdrop whenever you have an excuse to film uh, in the American Southwest. But there's this great Arizona car chase in in the desert, and uh, Marvin uh, catches up to the guys, and Marvin is able to take Duke. And at the same time, the FBI comes in and they take Jack. But then they come to a deal that uh, Jack is going to help them nab Serrano, the mob boss, basically claiming that he has the Duke's 3.5-inch floppy disks, which uh, contain all the incriminating evidence. And he's going to trade that back to Serrano for the Duke's life or something. Yeah, this 
part of the plot like didn't really make a lot of sense to me because earlier in the movie the duke said that he was going to put all of this incriminating information about serrano onto discs but he never did it so these discs don't really exist but jack is saying that if they hand him floppy disks that are blank and Serrano takes them thinking that they're evidence to destroy them, that they can still get him on obstruction of justice charges like that doesn't seem right. Like, I don't really know the intricacies of the law, but that seems like entrapment, right? This thing is what we call in the movie industry a MacGuffin. You're going to exchange some idol, some jewel, some blank with the boss, and we're going to nab him because he has that item in his possession. That's all it is. And it's 1980, so it's something, something, something floppy disks. I hear what you mean. It is a little confusing, but it's a whatever. But wouldn't it make it more straightforward for them to say, that the Duke did have all of this secret information. He put it on these discs. He's been holding on to them the whole time. And now Jack has them and they're going to use this evidence that's actual evidence. Like, wouldn't that just make more sense? I agree with you. And just I was thinking about it. Like when they do this exchange, I was like, these could be blank discs that they just bought at CompUSA. And in my mind, I was thinking if this is real, there might be one of the like the nerd that's in the mob. And he has one of these enormous 1987-1988 laptops so that he could verify it. But you understand this is not a USB drive that you could quickly plug it in and go, yeah, boss, all the files are here. Like you put one of these in at a time, you're going to have to like execute them. The little green light's going to have to go. It's going to take a while you're gonna hear the disc like moving in there you remember this al so yeah it really didn't make sense in any way like you would in a later like uh 90s and beyond like just to show that like progress bar and goes yes it's verified authentic like just exchanging floppy disks to me to someone in 2021 just seems so obviously insecure and probably fake. But I guess back then, no one really thought of that. To be fair, I didn't think they were being lazy. I don't think uh, the audience would have thought of that in 1988. That's a fair point. I mean, I think the first time they said computer disks, my ears just kind of like perked up, you know, from a test of time perspective of like, oh, you're going to put it on computer disks, are you? Yeah, I mean, it's as if someone said, I have the incriminating evidence on this USB jump drive, and you just hand it to them. Like, of course you're going to verify it, but it's just random disks in an airport. But regardless, the ruse works, and Serrano is taken down by the FBI. And the FBI, they had a deal, actually, that if uh, Jack helped them take down Serrano, that the FBI would hand the Duke over to Jack so that he could turn him in. So that's exactly what they do. Uh, the FBI lives up to their bargain, and they take the plane to L.A., and the Duke's like, are you fucking serious, man? After all we've been there, you're going to like still bring me? So he goes to L.A., and they go right to the payphone, and Jack calls Eddie. And Eddie's like, oh, you marvelous son of a bitch, even though Eddie has like betrayed him like five times at this point. He's like, yep, I brought him to L.A., saved your ass, but I'm letting him go. Fuck you. So he just basically called Eddie to tell him like he was able to get him to L.A., but he's not turning him in. Because Eddie was such a scumbag to him. Right. And he wants to do the right thing. But 
what happens to the Duke? Doesn't the FBI need him to, like, be a witness against Serrano? I mean, if they're going for the whole thing of, like, oh, well, he took the disc, so he he was doing obstruction of justice and we can nab him on that. Like that seems pretty thin. If he's a mob boss, you're going to want to throw everything you can at him. And if the Duke is his accountant and had all of this information, you're going to want him to testify. You're going to want him to be in witness protection. So just kind of letting him go seems bad for the FBI, seems bad for the case against Serrano, seems bad for the Duke uh, because there are still mafia hitmen out there who would be looking for him. It seems bad for Jack because now he's in violation of his agreement with the FBI. The FBI is going to come looking for him. Also, we kind of glazed over a lot of this, but along the way, Jack is responsible for a lot of damage. He broke a lot of laws on this cross-country trip. Like, he shouldn't be pissing off the FBI right now. Al, you're absolutely right. Um, This will affect the case uh, for the FBI. This FBI agent put a lot of faith in Jack uh, in delivering him to Los Angeles. So this FBI agent is probably going to have to answer to his superior why he let the star witness go. Uh, That being said, I think uh, Jack really doesn't care that the FBI guys are screwed over. Uh, what happens next uh, actually relates to a small scene that we skipped over earlier, and that's when they were uh, in the middle of the country somewhere, and they basically uh, you know, they need to take someone's car, and they feel bad because it's just these innocent guys that they have to take the car from them, and Jack takes off the Duke's watch, and he gives it to these guys as payment, and then after he gets him to L.A. and he says, uh, I'm going to let you go, Jack takes off his watch, the one that he has been holding on to and kind of uh, you know, reminds him of his wife, and uh, the Duke said, you know, she's not coming back and he gives this watch to uh the duke and he's like you know i owe you a watch i feel bad so not only has he let him go but he's given him a watch and so now the duke decides you know uh we're not quite even and i'm gonna give you a gift Right. And then he pulls off like from his leg. He has all of this cash strapped to him and he hands Jack $300,000. It's sort of like earlier when we found out that, oh, the Duke really wasn't afraid of flying. Like throughout this movie, they had to do all of this stuff to get money and to figure out how to get cross country. They ripped off that bar with the $20 and everything. Meanwhile, he's got hundreds of thousands of dollars strapped to his leg. But he didn't want to tell Jack that, obviously. He didn't want to make it easy for him to get to L.A. and go to jail and then be killed by, you know, one of the mafia guys in jail. So it makes sense. But it's also just like, why, Iota, you had hundreds of thousands of dollars. We didn't even get that omelet that one time because we were so broke. Well, he has $300,000, but Jack is going to definitely have to launder this somehow because if you notice, all of the money is in $1,000 bills. And as the last joke of the movie tells us, Jack tries to go to a taxi, he has a cab, and he's like, hey, you got change for 1000 And the guy's like, ah, fuck you, beat it, and, and drives away. Like, you can't really turn in $300,000 in $1,000 bills to a bank without them asking questions. So there's a lot of trouble in this uh, $300,000. That's true. That's true. And honestly, you know who would probably be a good guy to help him with that would be uh, Eddie and, you know, like the bail bonds office that he worked at before he quit. So that's obviously not going to work. I bet there's like shady places in L.A. by the airport. 
But yeah, I don't know, 300000 that's going to be tricky. Jack knows what, what to do with it, or he's going to buy a house in cash or something. That's what's going to happen. Like He'll do something smart with it. Although there are, uh, apparently there's like two made-for-TV uh, sequels to this film, which have nothing to do with anything. There is another Jack Walsh, and it's played by Christopher McDonald. It's a trilogy, apparently. They made three of them. They all came out in 1994. So when you have a trilogy like that that comes out like in February, March, and June of the same year, I don't believe they are known for their quality. I mean, that sounds like something like that was like the ABC, like Sunday Night Film. It's Christopher McDonald in Another Midnight Run. You would see that kind of thing for like the sweeps that year. And it got good ratings, so they made another one. And the second one uh, got good ratings. They got a third one. Third one flopped. We're not ordering a fourth Midnight Run. The titles of those movies are funny. Another Midnight Run, Midnight Run Around... Okay, and then Midnight Run for Your Life. (laughs) That's so bad, it's a little bit funny. Mostly terrible. I think for a TV film, it's perfectly fine. I I like it. But what do you think of this film in 2021, Al? Does 1988's Midnight Run stand the test of time? I have to say that I really enjoyed watching this movie. I think that the best thing about it is the chemistry between Robert De Niro and Charles Grodin. They are great together. They play off each other so well. Charles Grodin is so droll and dry, but likable at the same time. And Robert De Niro is playing like the tough guy that he's kind of known for, but with a comedic edge. But it's not meet the parents, Robert De Niro. It's not full tilt, zany, goofy satire. It's like a middle ground, kind of. Like, it's a comedic role. He wanted to do comedy. That's why he took this movie. He wanted to do something different. Apparently, he wanted to be in Big, the Tom Hanks movie, but that didn't work out. And so then he took this movie. And it does show that he can do comedy. He's got comedic chops. But I think it's done in a way that's, smart and just not stupidly over the top you know eventually we'll watch like meet the parents or analyze this he maybe went a little too far with the comedy but this movie i think does a really good job of striking a balance between comedy and action and drama for the most part i think the one thing that really hurts this movie in like striking the balance between these different tones is a score uh, it's a Danny Elfman score, and I love Danny Elfman, but some of like these action sequences, the score just kind of seems like too silly. Then you kind of feel like there are no stakes. Like there's a shootout and there's bad guys coming. Yeah, like the guitar riffs just kind of make it seem like comical and then i felt like it kind of took me out of the moment that did happen a couple of times and some of the action scenes aren't super well choreographed you know like i was saying with the helicopter explosion there's also a scene where all of these mafia like snipers are ready to shoot the duke but then cops show up and then they decide not to shoot but then they decide that they will shoot and it's like well if you were going to shoot and you didn't care that the cops were there you had minutes of opportunity to do it so little things like that 
kind of leapt out at me. And also, you know, the computer discs and the payphones and uh, the station wagon that Jack gets from his ex-wife, like the white wall tires on that thing, definitely made me laugh from a test of time perspective. But overall, I think the movie really does work. It is funny. I love one line. I forget exactly where they are when this happens, but Jack is like threatening the Duke and he's like, if you try to fuck me over and the Duke is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll hit me in the head and drop me in a thing. I know. I know. <laughs> like Charles Gordon's delivery cracked me up. I really, really enjoyed this movie. I'm only bummed that I hadn't ever seen it before now. I think it's a great movie. I'm going to say it definitely stands the test of time. What do you think, James? Well, what I think is, wow, not only did you, uh, like a film you hadn't seen before, but a film that I recommended that you hadn't seen before. You done good, man. You done good, James. All right. I'm going to say what I didn't really like about this film, and that is the score. I'm going to play you a little clip here. This is It's a pretty intense uh, chase scene, and listen to this, uh, this score here. The score was done today. It would be like a dun 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 dun. dun. You know, it'd be kind of an intense score. Like, but it's it's just played up for yucks, kind of. I think you actually make a very good point. It really lowers the stakes because when it's cartoony uh, Dukes of Hazard kind of uh, soundtrack, it really doesn't sound like oh someone really might uh, you know get into a car accident here and sever their spine. And, right. Uh, you know, there were certainly the test of timey things of, uh, you know, using all the pay phones and the fact that cell phones would have solved a bunch of problems in this film. But, you know, driving cross country, very easy to work this stuff out if you ever remade this film. Um, I, I think it really comes down to this film being uh, the cast. And that's very interesting. You say Robert De Niro in Big. I could totally see him playing in a very different way. But, like, you know, it, it's not necessarily meant for him. But Robert De Niro and maybe especially Charles Grodin, they work so well together. And this film deserves to be, I think, more well-known than it is. You know, Al, we often say in a lot of these podcasts that the movie, it just needed this one little scene to explain this. And, you know, I would have been a lot happier with one line. This would have made more sense. And I feel like this film, what it really gets right, aside from the chemistry, is that it really has those one extra scenes and those one extra lines that really kind of patch some of the holes that kind of bother us when, when they're not patched in films. And, and I think the film kind of respects that you are going to ask some of these questions so it, it answers them for you and uh, you know it, it's a great film I watched it with my girlfriend and she really liked it too and what she said was she's like you know it's like finding out like a prime De Niro film that you never knew existed like yeah. you know he's at his prime right there so I say absolutely uh, 1988's uh, Midnight Run stands the test of time I think it would be nearly uh, a perfect buddy film if uh, the score was changed. But overall, I think that this uh, this film is really fun. It's funny, and it stands the test of time. All right. We are in agreement. Awesome. That's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about a movie that came out in 2001, but it's about a historical event that took place in 1941. We're going to be talking about Pearl Harbor. Have you ever seen that movie, James? 
I've actually never seen this one. I know it's a, a Michael Bay film. I know it's uh, Ben Affleck, uh, Liv Tyler, and I think uh, Josh Hartnett and uh, Cuba Gooden Jr. Um, I actually believe it's pronounced Josh Hotnet. Get it? Because he's so hot. He's so dreamy. Uh, oh, no, but I haven't seen this film, so I, I couldn't tell you. But you know what Josh Hartnett looks like. I know what he looks like, but what have I seen him in? I did not see, uh, uh, what's the one with the helicopter going down in Somalia? Uh, Black Hawk Down. I didn't see that. I didn't see 40 Days, 40 Nights. I think he was in some vampire film. I don't think I've ever seen a Josh Hartnett film. Oh, well, he's a good-looking guy. Um, come back for that episode. That's going to be a ton of fun. As always, we want to hear from you on social media. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can email us. We are the Test of Time Podcast at gmail.com. Go to our website, testoftimepod.com. Find all of our back episodes. And uh, we will see you next week, everybody. Bye.